As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. That's lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome back to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Uh, very happy to be joined uh, with uh, Joe Smith, my partner in crime down in Tampa. He's our athletic beat writer, covers the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, Joe, how are you today? Doing well, Mike. How about you? I'm doing uh, great and uh, really um, looking forward to this podcast. It's going to be um, probably a difficult and uh, sometimes complicated uh, discussion, probably uncomfortable at times as well uh, to talk about um, race and what's been going on in the world and especially here in Minnesota. Very happy to invite my guests in right now. Uh, my first guest is uh, JT Brown, an NCAA champion at University of Minnesota Duluth, 29 years old, 10 years as a pro hockey player and most recently uh, with his hometown wild here in Minnesota. Um, Jared Spurgeon, Memorial Cup champ, as I always say, the biggest success story in uh, Wild history, um, made his NHL debut on his 21st birthday and basically never less. Now he's 30. He looks like he's 20. Uh, and his new seven-year deal kicks in uh, whenever next season begins. Uh, and the man who negotiated that contract is uh, Eustace King. He's my next guest, uh, the agent for JT Brown, Jared Spurgeon, former Wild players Chris Stewart and Jason Zucker. 
Uh, his partners are Matt Oates and uh, the famous Dean, Dean Grillo here in uh, Minnesota, an agent for 15 years and a former NHL executive. And uh, our final guest, Joe, um, last but certainly not least, uh, one of my favorite people, because in full disclosure, anytime I have an ache, I usually text him. Uh, the first black doctor in NHL history, currently the orthopedic surgeon for the Gophers and the Wild, uh, has been a team doctor for basically every team in town, USA Hockey, the Olympics, I think even my mother, uh, Dr. Boyd, Joel Boyd. How are you guys? We're doing well. We're great. Um, Dr. Boyd, uh, you, you, the one, I remember uh, many, many years ago, I think the first time I ever met you, you came up to me because I actually offended you because I, I think I wrote that the Wild played one night, their play one night was as painful as reconstructive surgery. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and you came up and you were seriously ticked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, first of all, you're comparing, you're comparing, you know, their play to, you know, actually having surgery. I mean, that's... <laughs> That was kind of a cheap shot, I thought. You know, I mean, after all, my surgery is painless. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Dr. Boyd, a wine and cigar aficionado as well. Um, so welcome, everybody. And, you know, the, I did want to talk to you guys. Uh, I reached out to Eustace last week, and he suggested, actually, this type of roundtable. And, um, and uh, you know, it's been a very, very, very tough uh, couple weeks here in Minnesota with the death of George Floyd. And, you know, JT, you're somebody that has uh, spoken out on this issue for many, many years. Um, it was really touching just watching your social media the last couple of weeks, seeing you go down to some of these peaceful protests, taking your wife, taking your two children as well. Um, can you discuss just what it has been like here in the Twin Cities and what it was like to be part of um, this last couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been sort of a whirlwind Um I mean, the emotions have ranged pretty much all over the board, uh, especially right away when uh, everybody, I mean, first saw the video of what happened. And, you know, I think as we went forward and when we were able to go down to, you know, the memorial and also be able to go down to the Capitol where uh, some of the peaceful protesting was going on, you kind of got a a good sense of community and community bonding and seeing uh, everybody come together, whether that was cleaning up the streets, uh, you know, putting flowers down at the memorial or, you know, just everybody ex exercising their right to uh, to protest and doing it peacefully at the Capitol. So I think, you know, right away, obviously, there's the anger, the upset, uh, the mourning side. But then, you know, obviously seeing everybody come together, you know, it gives you some sort of, uh, you know, being more optimistic. Do you guys think that, uh, you know, I don't know what it was that seems to have changed the world this time. Uh, maybe it was seeing that just horrible video and nine minutes of callousness. But do you think that this will change things for good? You know, George Floyd was was laid down to laid to rest last night yesterday. And sometimes in these situations, we th we see things disappear. Do you think that you actually th see a turning point coming with this? Um, I mean, I can start. I mean, I, th I think you have to be optimistic. Um, I think these issues have been brought in the past and there and it hasn't been received as with as much support. So, I mean, in that sense, it's definitely optimistic um, at the other side. You know, I think I, I tweeted the other day saying, you know, when the posts stop and the protests stop and it's, you know, not plastered over social media or when we kind of get back to our daily routines, 
are we going to have the same energy? Are we going to have the same focus? So I think that part's yet to be seen. But uh, with the outpour of, you know, support that's been going on, I think, you know, you have to be optimistic that uh, some sort of change will will come from it. Eustace, uh, Dr. Boyd, you, you've you've seen this many, many times um, over your years. Um, police brutality, racial injustice, racial inequality. Um, there have been protests in the before um, and they do seem to get quickly forgotten. Do you see a difference here? Uh, um, I, I'll speak. I mean, it, it, as you said, there's a, a vicious cycle and it repeats itself. You know, we've had for many years where, you know, we've had a, 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 a death and, and then after the death, we've had uh, riots, we've had mourning and then repeat the cycle uh, repeats itself. And so, you know, I really believe this time that it's different. There were a lot of people who were able to see in plain day. And, um, you know, I'll use Mark Frazier, the former NHLer who uh, I work with as well. And, and he coined it in his one of the articles he wrote that it, it was a, a, a modern day lynching. Like this this happened. It was unacceptable. Uh, this won't be tolerated anymore. And you see everyone waking up around not only the United States and all the communities, but across the world. And people are saying, hey, you know, uh, we're, we're looking for to, to just be treated civilly right. I mean, there's all these things that people are saying and suggesting across the world now. But in specifically, you see in Minneapolis. And, uh, and I believe that, you know, conversations like this, um, conversations that others are having, you're having uh, people of, who are not black, people who are white that are standing up and saying, that this cannot happen anymore. So you're seeing across the world that people are stepping up, which I believe will ultimately lead to reform and a changing of, of the, the system and, and the environment we've been in to, to date. Dr. Boyd? Yeah, I think that um, you know, much of what's been said is, is true. And I think you know what you have assembled here across the table is certainly multi-generational. Um, I was around for the 68 riots. I was about 11 years old, uh, but um, remember them very vividly. Uh, and then also I had a chance to sort of look back in sort of the short cliff notes of the progression uh, of, of where we've been and, and where we're going. You know, when the slavery was uh, abolished, so to speak, it was sort of an outcry and a social kind of mandate uh, that helped to push that along. But then of course, uh, racism transformed itself into Jim Crow laws and uh, and the like, where people weren't allowed to use bathrooms and, and, and restaurants. And you know, when I was a, a kid during that time, my my grandmother was born in slavery, so um, understood both of those steps. And then when you had the Jim Crow laws, then you had sort of you know JFK and uh, and and Lyndon Johnson. And, the, and Martin Luther King and that time period of the 68 riots where uh, the whole idea was to get rid of all of those, uh, get rid of Jim Crow laws, which, you know, they were successful at, but still it was mostly um, a black cause. And, and it was African-Americans who were doing most of the protesting and most of the, of the rioting. Um, there were some gains, obviously, things like voter rights, uh, you know, uh, came into being, um, you know, Jim Crow laws were, you know, sort of did, done away with for the most part. I mean, you're always going to have sections that are a problem, 
Um, and then as we move towards, you know, where we are today, uh, now we see another uh, uh, social sort of unrest that's uh, actually more related to, yeah, how times have changed technically with cell phones and things that are now put in the front of everybody's mind and, and they can plainly see. And those social injustices have created sort of a big, huge tidal wave of, of diversity. Um, and so all of a sudden, the, the demands and the, and the shout from the public is very diverse, very large. And uh, they're looking for, again, overarching change uh, by society, which we've done before. It's not like it's something that we haven't done, but um, we've done it with other things. I mean, we did it with drinking and driving. Uh, we did it with, uh, you know, those kinds of things where we just said, you know, enough is enough and we're changing the laws. And so uh, this is another uh, step in that direction. And, and you're right. I mean, we, we hope that it's enough to really push it as far along as possible. And, uh, and uh, it will require changes at every level because you can write this story not only in law enforcement, but in pretty much every walk of life where you talk about corporate America or you talk about medical uh, health care or um, any other business. Thanks, Dr. Boyd here. And I, I had a question for Jared, if I could. It's Joe Smith here in Tampa. And thanks again for doing this. Uh, I've been a big conversation since this all happened about hockey culture and uh, what players feel comfortable talking about, whether it's social issues or, you know, kind of staying in their lane, so to speak. And you've heard a lot of, you know, white players, black players speak out on this and say, I didn't know what to say but at first. I didn't know, you know, if it come out right. And I wonder if your perspective on what it was like for you and and where do you think the cocky culture is going now and where it was before in terms of we've got to be able to speak out more on these kind of issues and feel comfortable knowing that this sounds isn't always the right thing? Yeah, uh, for myself, I think it took a little while to think about what myself and my family want to do. Obviously, seeing what happened in the city that we live in is is not what you want to see and it definitely breaks your heart. But um, I talked with Eustace and I didn't want to be well, we didn't want to be one of those people that just put a statement out and then had nothing to show for it or do about it. We want to take action and try and help as much as possible in the ways that we can. And that's why we went through all the charities that we thought we could help with and not just by picking one, but by trying to do more than we could and spread them out a bit and then try and help, well, not help, but call other people to action as well. So, um I did, like I said, we didn't want to be one of those people that just wrote some words and then disappeared into the distance. We want to try and help and be there. And I've talked to Eustace a bunch about if he needs help or can inform me with anything that I'm all ears. JT, Jared, you know, there have been so many incidents of police brutality for decades. And, and obviously there have been incredible uh, incidents in the NHL, well-documented. We, you know, we saw with Akeem Alou um, revealing in November uh, the, the abuse he took from Bill Peters. We, you know, Keandre Miller this year and just the horrific Zoom that he had doing the call with the Rangers. Uh, JT, you were sort of alone on an island um, a number of years ago in Tampa raising your fist. Um, you know, Trevor Daly and juniors, I covered Peter Worrell in Florida and, and he, he had players twice suspended for racial uh, slurs, banana peels thrown on the ice in Quebec. Why now? Why do you think this is the time that white hockey players 
have suddenly spoken out? Is it just that we're not in season and, and, and they're paying attention? Why do you think it is, JT? Um, I think, you know, obviously not having a season, it definitely helps. Um, you know, a lot of times our mentality is, you know, we're just ready for the next thing. We're ready. We have a game the next day or we're getting ready to go to practice. There's just so many other things that go on during a season. But, uh, you know, right now there's nothing going on. There's no distraction. And, I mean, as you alluded to, I mean, it was a nine-minute video uh, during the day and what everybody saw. So I think it's kind of hard to not necessarily turn a blind eye, but there's also it's hard for you not to notice and not to – you know, want to say something, especially in this instance where, like you said, we're not doing anything. Um, you know, obviously there's a little bit of training going on, but for the most part, uh, we're pretty free and it's all you're seeing right now. Jared. Yeah. I think too, with the platforms of players with social media and being able to, to get their voices out. And like JT said, it's a, it's a video that you never want to see, but everyone unfortunately had to see that. And I think now with a lot of players and um, just the way our game is going, that everyone is more comfortable voicing their opinion, and especially when you see something that isn't right. So I think, um, like JT said, there isn't a ton of going on right now, but um, for every player to be able to watch a video like that and try to um, be a help for the cause is what we're all trying to do right now. You're listening uh, to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Joe Smith in Tampa is also uh, co-hosting the show with me. Um, and uh, we really appreciate you listening in. And, and to subscribe to The Athletic, you can always go to theathletic.com slash straight from the source. Um, JT, I, I watched the T- TSN uh, roundtable that you had the other day with Blake Wheeler and uh, Curtis Gabriel and Matt Dumba. And one of the things that really struck me um, that – I know it sounds stupid, but was a real eye opener for me was when you were talking about the times that you're pulled over and where you keep your driver's license, your insurance card to make sure that you are putting yourself in the best position to be safe. And I think that white people like myself, Joe, Jared, we, you know, if we're pulled over, our only nerves come from hoping that we can get out of a ticket. It really was an eye opener to me. Um, can, can you and Eustace and Joel talk about those experiences and the nerves that you have every in everyday life just going outside and making sure that you're safe? I mean, yeah, I could speak just to kind of what we talked about uh, in the TSN interview. Um, I keep my license and my registration, insurance, I just keep it in my, like where your garage door opener uh, goes. So I don't, you know, just to limit any inference that I might be reaching for something. Um, you know, I'm just trying to limit my chances of having something bad happen to myself. And, you know, I think that's a, something that you don't want to have to do, but it's a precaution that, you know, I take on my, my own so that, you know, I make sure that I come home safe. I would say the ticket, the ticket's the last uh, thing on the, of my worries right now, (laughs) whether or not, um, you know, I'm going to get a speeding ticket or whatever the case may have been. And, and I'd echo the same thing. I mean, there's been situations where, you know, I played junior hockey in, in Dubuque, Iowa. And during that time, this is 92, there was a lot of uh, racial protests. And and, and uh, as the city was trying to um, um, move forward and be in the modern era at the time, uh, the mayor was trying to bring black families into the community to try and help. Um, reestablish uh, 
that it's not just a, a white, an all-white community, but to integrate it. And there was one time I was pulled over, and um, I had put my hands out the, the window to make sure the cop didn't think I was going to do anything because I was young. I was only you know, a 19, 20-year-old kid. And I'd already known at the backdrop a few years ago, Yusuf Hawkins had been killed. Uh, I think it was in 89 or 90. And, and you know, uh, the one cop on the right side had his finger on his gun because he was concerned that if I was going to do something or trigger something that he's prepared while I was answering questions with the officer that was at my door. And, and for me, it was scary because of the fact that you know, kids were, and, and I have been taught my whole life, like, you need to make sure that you're alert, you speak well, you talk to the to the officers. But the same token, I had to go into my glove box, which is on the other side, to try and get my driver's license to be able to display that I did have a legal license and insurance because I was a young man driving a car. And, 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 and the, problematic with, the problem with that whole situation is that I was nervous and scared, and when you're nervous and scared, you do things that you probably wouldn't normally do. Whereas there's others that are around that sit there and say, hey, you know what, at the end of the day, like you said, you know, you're just worried about how big your fine's going to be. And so these are things that as, you know, myself and others, you know, if I go running late at night at the same age, I need to make sure that I am running on the other side of the street so I don't offend someone or at the time to make sure that someone's not uncomfortable. So there's all these things that are in our DNA that we have systemically grew up with that we've had to do or alter or adjust just to make other people feel comfortable where other people didn't even think like that. And I think right now you're hearing all these stories about what others are going through in their history. And Doc Boyd's, I would assume, is probably, his his, his examples are probably, or, or history is, is even more profound than what I've gone through. But the same token, these are the things I've had to do and endure and I've had to talk to my kids about. And so now you're seeing, wait a minute here, what's wrong with this, this system? What's wrong with this mindset? It, like some of these things that I'm telling you, people say to me, like, I can't even believe that you would even uh, have to think that way. But it's the reality that we live in. I would, uh, I would echo uh, that sentiment. And, and certainly having uh, been around a little longer, um, indeed, it's a, it's a true concern. I mean, it, it passes down from generation to generation. You know, my... My mother, you know, taught me, you know, if I'm driving and, and I get pulled over, you know, you know, your hands are 10 and 2. Don't move until he requests that you move or the police officer. Um, and and just that fear of that that whole setting. And, and so it's just like uh, JT said, I mean, I never I mean, not once have I it's ever been an issue about the ticket or the size of the ticket or going to jail for a traffic violation or something. That was never the issue. However, it was always sort of this increased anxiety that happened, you know, when you get pulled over. And it's happened. It's happened in my adult life, uh, you know, uh, not actually not overly long ago, uh, where you get, uh, at, you know, pulled over. And at the end of the conversation, it's sort of like you're still trying to rationalize exactly why did I get pulled over? And, it, and, it, and, and a couple of them don't even end up in tickets. And, uh, but they just sort of needed to satisfy some inquiry that they had about the person driving that car. And so um, it, uh, it does, you know, still happen. And, and we still have to educate our children. I educated my children on that fact as well. You know, and, and you know, the common phrase 
uh, actually in the community is, you know, driving while black. And, you know, if you're driving while black, it's completely different than when most people drive. And, uh, you know, you are always, you know, a suspect. And that's that's kind of how we send our kids out into the world. That, you know, there is something else that I think that, you know, Jared, I think you'd agree that and, and you have four young ones. Um, that's something that you might never have to worry about. Um, you know, JT, you have a I think a three year old and a one and a half year old uh, boy and girl. Um, uh, you know, Dr. Boyd, I, I know you have three kids. Uh, your youngest uh, works for Procter & Gamble and uh, two of your children work uh, with the Seattle, new Seattle NHL team. Um, Eustace, uh, two, two children as well, um, eight and ten. How, J- Jared, how do, you, um, how, how do you talk about what's going on in the world with your kids right now? Or are they too young? And how do you plan to teach them about maybe the differences that that really JT and Eustace and Dr. Boyd have to teach their kids? Well, I don't think it's ever an age that's too young to be talking about it. And um, with our oldest, he's 10, and um, we try and educate him as much as possible. And for myself and Danielle growing up, we were always taught what I would like to say is the right way, that it doesn't matter the skin color, it's the, the person inside and the personality that you're judging them on and um, for us we're it's not like we're hiding it from them we want them to know what's going on and we want them to be a part of the change and um, me and Eustace have been working together for 10 years and um, he came up past year with um, or maybe last summer with his family for a hockey tournament and we we had uh, a game that myself and Zach went to watch and um, we didn't force it upon them or anything like that and to be friends just because we're agents or anything like that, but they went about their day and um, all of a sudden they're text messaging each other back and forth. They're <laughs> trying to be the next JT Brown on Fortnite, and then I told them that JT actually doesn't play that much, but um, <laughs> I think it's just the the way that we're trying to teach them is the way that we were brought up, and uh, like we said in the start of this is that we don't want this to all of a sudden fall back into the way it was before after everything's said and done when the, all the media coverage stops. We want them to, um, when they grow up, be teaching their kids and also when they're going through their lives being hopefully the respectful people that we are trying to raise. Eustace, how much do you worry about your children uh, when when they leave their house? And, and JT, can you also talk about maybe some of the things that you might have to teach your kids that maybe your dad had to teach you? Um, for, for me, it was, it was as we're, we're all of our, all of everyone here is under anxiety right now. And, and whether it's the pandemic that we're dealing with, or if you want to call this a, another pandemic, which is, you know, racial uh, inequalities in the U.S. But, you know, my wife the other day, my son went running and, you know, he's, he's 10 and a half, almost 11 and, and Kingston was running and um, she teared up because she couldn't see him. And she was like, he's going up the hill and I'm scared that if something happens, he's only running for a, a half mile by himself, but what happens? And all these things that she never thought about. And, and I feel that, you know, we're in a great community. The community I live in is Valencia, California, and it was rated in the top 10 safest mid-sized communities in the United States of America. But she, she was scared because she saw the things that 
you know, going through and what was happening on the TV and she sees him by himself and, you know, as a mother, she wants to protect him. And then as a father, what I'm trying to do and my wife have been trying to do and, and, and we're both educated. My wife's a neuropsychologist. I'm a, an agent. We're both educated people. But it's to, to continue to expose our kids to uh, different information. And, you know, we don't want our kids to watch what happened to George Floyd and actually see the straight video. But we also have talked about why are there been protests. And, and my son the other day uh, wanted to go to a protest. And then the next morning he woke up and said, I don't know if I want to go. I've talked to my friends and I'm scared. I don't want to go there because everyone says there's rioting and looting and all these things. And, and, and I said, well, it's up to you. And then he came back to me. He said, let's go. We went. He had his little sign. And the two little guys, Kinks and the Santana, they sat there and, and they supported the cause. But they also learned that I don't have to be scared. There's people here who are peaceful. There are people who are doing it for the right reasons. And so we're, we're constantly trying to educate. We're trying to, to expose them, you know, through travel, through different cultures. But at the same token, my son is 10 and a half years old. He knows. He's studying Martha Luther King. He's learning in school these, these things about uh, civil rights and history. And now he's saying, wow, I didn't know that what happened, you know, 30, 40 years ago is still happening today. And for him, his question is, and which is hard for me to answer, is why? And that's where I get put in and other families get put in these scenarios where what are you teaching your kids and how are you trying to explain it? Because as a parent, I can't really give them an answer. I don't know why. It just keeps happening. It's a cycle. The cycle keeps repeating itself. I mentioned it earlier in the broadcast. You know, there's a death. There's a riot. There's mourning. And then we repeat the cycle again. Yeah. JT. Yeah, I'd say for myself, I mean, my goal is, I mean, I brought my kids to protest. They don't know what's going on. Um, like you said, at three and one and a half. But, you know, I think these are uh, good life lessons for them when they do get older to see and to be able, you know, to continue to educate them on those sort of things. And, you know, as far as teaching them, you know, like kind of like what I was taught, I'm not sure how or why, but I'm going to make sure that I, I continue uh, to educate them because I look at it too, like my kids are very, very fair skinned and they could probably pass as white kids. So I'm not sure what type of situations they're going to be in. I mean, Booker has blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, so again, I think the main focus for us is continuing to educate them and making sure, you know, they know their history, they know what's going on and, you know, sort of things that I went through that my dad went through and my grandparents and so on. So, you know, that's our, our main focus is, you know, just trying to educate them and so that they, you know, will be a part of the change as well. JT, it's uh, Joe here, and you know, I was with you in the building in that night when you raised your fist in the bench there in Sunrise, and I know you thought long and hard about it, talked to a bunch of people, whether it's people at the military, your family, and friends, and the team, and I want to see if you could just take a look back and take us through that moment um, and, the, I guess, the reaction you got from maybe the team and teammates, and I know the public wasn't as supportive as, as quite as, as there was so much, much outpouring of support there is now. Um, people are speaking out. Oh, yeah, I mean... I definitely had a lot of reflecting, had time to sort of kind of come up with a plan. Um, you know, I, I even talked to Eustace quite often and, you know, going into that situation. And, you know, one thing he stressed to me was, you know, what's your plan after? And I think that's kind of the main focus that uh, 
you know, I put into into those thoughts and into, you know, me, you know, displaying my support. So I think that was kind of the main focus going forward. But, uh, you know, the team definitely I, I told them, told the ownership, told the staff uh, what I was going to do prior. And, you know, they definitely respected uh, my right to do so. And, you know, the courage that it took to kind of take a stand. And I was going to add in this is Eustace is uh, I was going to add when JT talked about what was he going to do after you know, one of the things that we talked about is that, hey, we're in Tampa, and could we have a national impact? Yes, because everyone in hockey is going to see this. But the key thing we talked about after was is JT now was able to sit at the table. He sat at the table with, you know, the mayor. He sat at the table with the chief of police, with all the key stakeholders in that community and city, and was able to communicate what his concerns were, and, and there were actionable steps that came out of that. And that's kind of what we're talking about now. You see these different groups. The NHL is going to have, you know, a diversity and inclusion committee. You know, you, you know, you see um, that there is going to be a, a formation of the Hockey Diversity Alliance. And the and the whole premise is is that what is the next step? You know, what are we going to do uh, to be able to move forward and put actionable steps that can change and impact the future generations? So. Uh, what JT did, what was so brave, he was by himself. And that's a hard thing to do. And and other guys like Kaepernick have been by themselves. But now there's this huge group of individuals and this groundswell of people that want to help, that want to do something. And what we have to do is figure out how do we, how are we going to do it? What are we going to do? What are the steps? And then evaluate. Did they work? Okay. And then reevaluate. It's no different than if you have a navigation in your car you you know you have to keep recalculating until you find the right direction jt do you feel that the league that things are going to change from that standpoint i remember when you did that you know reading from afar and you know even you know the silence was loud and i do remember even gary bettman came out and said that there you know that he i think respected your your uh ability to exercise your commitment there but but he also said that people don't come to games to see that i mean you know do, do you think that this is suddenly that turning point that the league is starting these you know four different committees that there is the hockey diversity alliance things like that yeah i mean i definitely hope so i mean like you said there wasn't the same you know support or you know the committees and everything that's been going on and the changes that the, they're starting to make so like I said, kind of in the beginning, you have to be hopeful that, uh, you know, this is the change and, you know, it's better late than never. I think you said you brought up a good point about what's next and what JT did afterwards, you know, in terms of with the police and going on ride alongs and, and going with the different drills. And I was curious, JT, what you learned from that experience being hands on. And, and do you guys all think that it's important for teams and players to have an active role in terms of, you know, with the law enforcement and both sides understanding each other and being kind of leaders in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, uh, like you said, gaining an understanding. Um, uh, the police chief down there, I mean, he still texts me. Uh, he texts me this last or a week ago or a week and a half ago when kind of everything was going in Minnesota. So, you know, I still have a relationship with him. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I cherish. But I think going into those drills and going in was just trying to get a better understanding. And I think, you know, one thing that's kind of stuck with me that, uh Chief Dugan said three years ago, and he's still been preaching uh, to his community as well, is, you know, he always said that 
you can want justice, you know, in this case, it's for George Floyd, or, you know, you want to hold the police accountable for police brutality, but that doesn't mean you have to be anti-cop. And on the other end, you can support the police department and you can still want justice, you know, in these situations. So that's kind of sad with me and, you know, being able to get an understanding, um, go through ride-alongs, get to see what the stops are like. Uh, there was quite a few interesting ones that uh, I was on. And then on the same sense, uh, you know, doing the actual drills with the uh, the rubber bullets and kind of just seeing what, you know, obviously like their training drills and their preparation is like. Did, did it change your perspective, JT? Yeah, I think it definitely did. I think it still doesn't change my opinion about wanting justice uh, in these and, you know, in these situations where police are overusing their force and stepping over the lines. And I think that hasn't changed. But, you know, being able to become friends with him uh, on a on a different level, uh, sort of, you know, it just opened my eyes a little bit more to what uh, I guess what police go through and what their training is. But uh, at the same time, like I said, it, it didn't change my my focus on wanting, you know, police brutality to end. Jared, do you, um the relationship you have with Eustace is very, very close. I always see you guys after games in Anaheim and LA. Um, how did you guys find each other? And, um, and, and Eustace, you know, I mentioned you were an NHL executive then you turned an agent. Um, what is it like to be one of the very few, uh, black agents in the NHL? Um, for myself, we actually met through Tyler Ennis. So, uh, I was playing junior, and at the time, I was using my brother's agency, and um, things didn't work out well for him, and they weren't going so well for myself either. So um, I talked to Tyler, and um, I had heard of Eustace before, but had never met him. And um, I think we were playing in Portland, and he flew up to see me and play. And um, I w went out to pl or after the game to meet him and just chat and um, just the way he was, spoke about um, the players that he had, what he was trying to build with his agency and um, where he thought I could fit in with that. Um, I could tell that he was very educated on what the agent role that he was in and I had heard nothing but good things from the Ennis family about what he had done for Tyler. So. Um, I went in there and talked to Eustace, and I think the next day he told me to think about it for a couple of days to see if I wanted to join the or the group. And I think I phoned him the next morning and let him know that I was I was very excited to join him. And at the time, I had no idea who else was in the agency or who I was going to be working with. But um, like you said, me and Eustace have um, had a great bond ever since then and I consider him like family and like I said our sons are great friends and they talk every day and when he comes up to see us in Minnesota he's over at the house his family was over this past summer and um, it was just something that when I met Eustace I could just see the passion he brought and um, that was the same passion that I had for moving forward and he's done nothing but help my family with decisions, um, whether it's life, um, hockey, or just in general. He's been nothing but a blessing to our family. Well, thanks, Jared. Appreciate that. Um, you know, as, as far as, you know, being 
at the time, you know, for many years, I was the only black agent in the National Hockey League. Um, now this Brent Peterson is also a good man and works hard. But I mean, to be honest with you, when I started this, this is back in, I don't know, um, in 96, when I got in the National Hockey League, I built some relationships, got to know Willie O'Ree. Um, and then when I built my own agency in the early 2000s, you know, the, the thing that helped me was building you know, bonds with other people that are similar to me. You know, you had guys like Doc Boyd. I met him in 1996 and he had his two little sons that were my son's age. And he would encourage and talk to me about what he's doing, being the first black doctor. And then I had Jay Shears, who was also a guy who was a heavy lifter. You know, he happened to be like me, uh, uh, part Jamaican and his family's from the West Indies. And he was lifting up you know, sticks and carrying bags and doing all these things. And he'd been on the ice in the National Hockey League for 10 plus years and had a, a, a unbelievable career as a, as a linesman and, and also a referee in the National Hockey League. You know, there was Brian McBride, who was the one who started the whole thing, um, who created the Hockey is for Everyone program uh, back in, you know, the, the, the mid-90s and has been a champion. And him and I have done some unbelievable things over the years who's been a mentor and a friend to help me through this. And and and, and ultimately, I've got to give thanks and, and, and a lot of praise to Willie O'Ree. You know, I currently am his, his agent. I currently am working with him on projects. We just finished the Willie documentary movie. That's phenomenal that everyone needs to see it. It's on Amazon or or iTunes. And, 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 and most importantly, there's things like a book and then there's other things that we're doing that we're trying to educate we're trying to help people here better understand what we're going through but i'll tell you this you know they they, they always say it takes a village to raise you know one kid i mean it, it was the same thing for me i was in an industry that was purely white um you know back in the mid 90s there was probably three four five guys in the national hockey league that were black and so um, and now we've got anywhere from 30 to 40 guys in the National Hockey League that are currently playing, depending on if they're in the minors or not. And, and that is a huge accomplishment, but it's not where we're going to stop. But I'll tell you this, there were early days when I first started as being you know, a black agent. I was, I was by myself and I was doing things and I had to learn how to manage and work through people. And the other thing I'll have to tell you this, which is you know very ironic, there were a lot of Black athletes, and this is something here, and, and I want you to really think about this when I say this, that they were first-round guys. They were high-end, world-class athletes in World Junior or in the U.S. or Canada or even in Europe that asked me before they made a decision to potentially work with me, hey, you know what, what you do is great. You work hard, Eustace, but do you think if I have a black agent and I'm a black athlete, that is too much for the establishment to be able to to understand and work with, will it ultimately hurt me in my career? Now, the last thing that I'm thinking about is, wait a minute here, well, you would think that that would actually help you, but there was a concern with that. And, and so there, I was not only dealing with being the only black agent and also dealing with a predominantly white sport, but I also had people who of, of color that were black, they were good athletes that I was qualified. I did all these things right. I had experience at the National Hockey League. I had a lot of deep-rooted relationships from the commissioner to Bill Daly to whoever you else you want to name in the league, and I had a good track record. But that concern was still there. And so that's where we come now 
15, 20 years later, and we see what's happening. And then the question is, how far have we come? So being a pioneer and being at the front of it was very, definitely challenging. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without the guys that I mentioned. Right. And Dr. Boyd, similarly, being a, a pioneer, I mean, it, you know, you've been a doctor for decades. You've, as I've mentioned, you've worked for every team in town. You've worked Olympics, uh, but you became the first NHL black doctor uh, many, many years ago. Um, you know, how prideful is that? And then to see your children go and uh, your daughter's an executive with the uh, with the Seattle franchise. Your uh, son is uh, one of two people working in the diversity inclusion department with that franchise as well. Just the pride there. Yeah, it's uh, it's overwhelming. Um, I can remember, you know, back, uh, you know, starting in my practice and my uh, first trip to the USOC uh, training center is in 95, I believe. And, um, you know, a gentleman there, Lou Varro, uh, was the was one of the first people I met. And Lou uh, was very much uh, in wanted to was dedicated to really uh, getting more uh, people of color into hockey across the board than, you know, black, Hispanic, whatever, just the diversity. He wanted to see hockey really grow. And I remember uh, Lou was the one uh, who introduced me to Brian McBride, uh, as, as Hughes just mentioned. And he also looked at me and he said, you know, USA Hockey needs you. Hockey needs you. And that line kind of stuck with me for, you know, for the rest of my life. And um, ultimately, you know, uh, I was able to do a lot of work with USA Hockey. Uh, including the Olympics uh, in 98. Uh, and, and and along the way, I mean, I was so focused on doing a good job. I mean, I'm sure, and, and, and you could feel it sometimes. It was that sentiment of, you know, an injured player is like, you know, well, what do you know about hockey kind of a thing? And uh, even though I didn't play growing up. And uh, it was interesting because my response was always, I always felt like, you know, if you were a roofer and you fell off and broke your leg when you went to the ER, you didn't ask the ER doc, what does he know about roofing? Um, so it was, uh, it was, you had to, you know, I had to stay in my lane and do what I do best. And, and, and I thought that, that, uh, that I could do that. And so it transformed itself into, uh, you know, becoming the head team physician for the Minnesota wild and, uh, in, uh, uh, the year 2000 when they, when they started, um, had a fair amount of support with that. And uh, as Hughes just mentioned, our relationship started at the NHL and with the diversity uh, hockey program. Uh, and I did, I would take my kids to um, all those events as, as many as I could uh, and include them. Uh, and they, and they loved going. So they did have an experience to see other minorities could participate in hockey and it just fueled their desire to continue to, play and be involved and be involved in hockey. So, um, so our conversations now, I just wanted to sort of circle back to, you know, the conversations that you have with your kids. Like my conversation with my kids now is very different than, you know, obviously if they were 12 or 10 or that kind of thing, my conversation now as they are young adults um, is about, you know, what can, what can they do? And a lot of the things that JT and Jared, you know, they're into those same kinds of, of things. And I think those are extremely important. Uh, but the other thing that they can do is not sort of be apathetic to uh, the voting process uh, and, and not let it just kind of go by if there's someone there that they don't 
necessarily care for uh, on either side uh, because it's important because someone's going to win and someone's going to take that place. And, you know, the only the, at the end of the day, if you're looking for overarching change, it requires legislation. And that legislation has to be done by the people in the Congress and the Senate and, and, and even in the White House. And, you know, you have to take an active part and be involved in who those people are from a local level, you know, whether it's just your, your, your local mayor, uh, to your local representative, your local senator, governor, whoever, you have to take an active role and be involved in, you know, helping to make that choice and uh, in order to push that legislation forward. So um, I think that those are the kinds of conversations I have with my children now compared to, you know, the ones that we, because I had all those ones that we talked about already. Dr. Boyd, you mentioned the McBride and the Diversity Task Force. I think both you and Yusuf were part of that organization, that, that movement. Uh, what kind of things were you able to accomplish with that Diversity Task Force and things, maybe some challenges you guys faced along the way in terms of uh, getting more people involved? Well, Yusuf probably has more stories than I have, but I, I, I certainly remember, you know, I think that it was extremely prideful to go to an All-Star game and have an event that was dedicated to uh, the involvement and inclusion of uh, uh, both under underprivileged and minority uh, minority uh, kids uh, at and treat them like NHL players and NHL all stars, and uh, it was great to see the looks on their faces, the, the looks in their eyes. I mean, just to to feel like, hey, you know, we can, uh, you know, do something and. and, and can continue to work and play and aspire uh, to a, uh, a level of involved the NHL. So I think that was for me a huge thing. I mean, but we also had periods where, you know, uh, Willie had threats um, and, and, you know, that became a big issue uh, with some of the places that we went and, uh, you know, you wouldn't even think of it, but it was just unbelievable that, you know, there would be people out there that, would, I mean, literally would send threatening letters, uh, you know, uh, looking to harm, you know, Willie O'Ree, which just didn't even make any sense. Absolutely. And, and the echo what, what Doc Boyd's saying is that uh, the program definitely, as a pilot program, did a lot of stuff. If you look at the outcome, you know, the first uh, player, Gerald Coleman, who ended up playing in Tampa's system uh, and played an NHL game in Tampa, was from my hometown of Chicago at Evanston, Illinois. And, you know, he was the first guy who was in the NHL diversity uh, task force at the time. Uh, now hockey's for everyone to make it to the NHL. Then you move forward and you see things like, you know, ice hockey in Harlem. You see skills hockey where, you know, Wayne Simmons, Chris Stewart, you know, Joel Ward, Devontae Smith-Pelly, these kids all played in this program that was in Toronto, and it gave birth to who they are now, and then we come full circle. Wayne Simmons has a program that's very similar to the program he's, he, he worked on uh, or, or, or played in uh, when Willie O'Ree would, would come and visit that ultimately gets him a league award of saying, hey, you know what, there's young kids, there's, you know, Zade Wisdom who's going to go into this year's draft. And he's a kid who was directly impacted by Wayne Simmons. So what you're seeing is that, hey, there's building blocks here, but we've done it knowing at the backdrop that there's been, 
different biases or racism in hockey. And now what we're saying is, hey, what would happen if there was more opportunity? More opportunities, you know, right now there's been lost opportunities that people have not been able to gather back, whether it's myself or whether it's other players. And now you say, okay, if everyone, you know, has the same opportunity, and I always like to say, you know, ability uh, and and opportunity have to intersect. If ability and opportunity um, intersect, now you've got a guy who could develop into the National Hockey League, or you have a young woman who could develop into the NWHL or however we move forward into management and or to different areas of business within hockey. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Joe Smith, uh, you have to uh, have to leave right now. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a great conversation, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Just a couple more minutes with, uh, with Joel Boyd, Jared Spurgeon, Eustace King, and uh, JT Brown. This is Michael Russo on Straight from the Source. Uh, again, to subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash straight from the source. Uh, one great podcast uh, going on today as well that you can listen to is Matt Dumba and Akeem Alou are joining Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on uh, Two Man Advantage. So make sure uh, you listen to that. Um, Jared, JT, we talked about it earlier in the show, but the culture of hockey is one where – it's almost like, you know, don't step out of your box. Don't stand out. Be part of the team. Don't let your personality shine. You know, get pucks deep, uh, things like that. Um, how does this conversation continue once games actually do start up again? That this is not something that just falls into the back burner. That, that you know, this does remain part of our um, new normal. Uh, I think it just takes everybody to hold themselves accountable and want to keep the conversation going. Um, I'm sure you've you're you've heard it more than we have, but uh, the, probably get a little bit frustrated. I mean, if you look at a hockey player's interview, I'm pretty sure four or five things are mentioned in every single one of them. Um, like you said, the getting pucks in deep and it's a team aspect. But I think uh, we can be a part of a team, but we can also you know talk about things that uh, we're passionate about. Jared? Yeah, I think um, like JT said that if it's uncomfortable and people are uncomfortable with it, the only way to get over that is to keep talking about it. And um, hopefully now with people speaking out and um, more than just one person, like we talked about when JT was doing it uh, years past when he was all by himself, that there's more people that are speaking out about it and um, they, we can continue to do that and there isn't a backlash about what's, what you're going to speak, that you can speak your mind and that everyone's supporting it. And, um, I think at, at the time there's, there's people like Eustace has said for, um, different things that I'm not sure if you're scared about what you're saying and the backlash you're going to get, but I think you can't be doing that anymore. You have to voice your opinion and like we've all been saying, be a part of that change. JT, as, as Eustace said about 20 minutes ago, I mean, you've been so courageous in this effort and talking about this. And, you know, when you did um, your really brave protest on the bench in, in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale, you faced a lot of silence and you did this as, as sort of, a you know, I mean, a bottom six forward on a team like the Lightning. And here you are again, you're, you're a free agent this summer. You've seen in the past that, that guys that stamp up in the NHL sometimes are rolled right out of it. I mean, we saw it during the lockout where a lot of guys that went up against the owners in those face-to-face meetings between the PA and the, and the owners um, never played a game again in the NHL. 
do you do you worry about that? Do you care about that? Do you do you, or is that just not something that um, is even on your mind? I mean, it's definitely been brought up, uh, especially in uh, the Tampa situation. Um, I mean, I knew there was going to be backlash. Uh, it wasn't going to be a very popular opinion, uh, I guess. A lot of people obviously supported it, but there was a lot of uh, negativity towards it as well. So, I mean, you definitely, those are things you got to think about. But at the end of the day, uh, I mean, like I said back then, I knew what I needed to do and I knew it was the right thing to do. Um, And I think, you know, even going to now, it's more, my focus is less on the sports side, but, you know, creating a better, a better future for not only my kids, uh, you know, my family's kids, but also, you know, kids around the world and trying to make sure that, you know, they grow up and that they have a better system and a better way of life than what I had or what my parents had. So to me, it's uh, it's bigger than myself. Um, so again, it's just more so on, you know, creating a, a better world and a better, um, you know, environment for these young kids. A couple minutes more. Um, do you guys have thoughts on whether or not, you know, the, the one real uplifting thing that's happened here the last uh, couple of days when we talk about these different committees is that they are trying to now talk about making hockey and the NHL actually diverse, you know, figuring out a way to open up doors to allow younger players of color the ability to play, be able to afford to pay, play, feel comfortable playing where Matt Dumba and Jordan Greenway aren't the only men of color in a, in a wild locker room where JT Brown doesn't have to walk, walk into a room and know that he is the only black man in that locker room. H- how does that actually start to occur? I know that's an over, a real large question, but do you each have thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll go. It's used to stalking here. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of this has to do with is just um, changing how we begin to uh, integrate kids into the sport. So for example, you know, the governing bodies or the federations, USA Hockey, the NHL, they have programs. But, you know, let's say USA Hockey, for example, you know, uh, there's different type of modules you have to take to be a coach or be a player or be a manager. And, you know, we have to revisit those, you know. Uh, We're learning about concussion protocol. We're learning about these other things. But we need to be able to, at the ground level, so when a, a, a kid that's eight years old enters into hockey and now they're, hey, we're going to register, that they get triggered with some information. And, and that's what we've been doing and focusing on with the Willie O'Ree uh, movie, the movie Willie, and all the things that we're trying to do and going into schools. It's all about education, educate, educate, educate. And then after you educate, then uh, you continue to transform the education that they've gotten into current information. So a kid who goes from eight to now he's in high school, he's getting new information and is building on what he learned. But also, I think, you know, the NHL and other folks, and I really believe this firmly, like Doc Boyd, he was a qualified doctor and a surgeon. He went to school. He did all the things. And so I think for, for, for a lot of us, we're saying, hey, there are a lot of qualified people who are highly capable that can go into positions of influence in the National Hockey League. And we want to see those people get their opportunities. There's coaches, there's referees, there's different people of color that just for some reason just haven't been able to move up. And there's people that are of different genders. There's women that are highly successful, really smart. You know, uh, we got Blake Bolden who's working for the LA Kings. You know, she, you know, I, her and Cameron Ganado, I think, are the two first women to work in hockey. Well, why is that? There's some really educated people 
and 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 skilled people that have accomplished a lot on the ice in school that should be sitting at the table. Yeah, and kind of going back to what Yusuf said, I think there's got to be a, a big emphasis on the on the youth organizations. Um, you know, I just think of how many kids quit, you know, quit hockey because they felt uncomfortable or because, you know, opposing players were using racial slurs against them. Um, I feel like if we can, like, that's a big area where if we can limit some of that, maybe more players will keep playing, you know, maybe the next Matt Dumba or the next PK Subban doesn't quit and ends up making it. So, I mean, I, I look back at my situation. I was fortunate enough when, you know, situations like that happened in my youth hockey, my coach had my back, whether the ref heard it or not. I mean, there were times where we quit the game. We forfeited the game because, you know, another player used a, a racial slur against me. And that, that kind of shapes my, like my youth going up, knowing that I had a coach and I had a team that completely had my back. So you know, that deterred me from wanting to quit and to keep playing the sport. So I think, you know, having more players uh, continue or more coaches being held accountable in the youth level to, you know, keep educating these kids uh, will make it so that, you know, the next future wave of NHL players could have more minorities in it. Dr. Boyd, uh, how, did, how did your kids overcome that? I mean, you had, uh, you know, as I mentioned, two kids working for an NHL team right now. And your son, Casey, I remember was captain of at Blake. Um, you know, how did they overcome it? Well, I mean, I think one thing that I always felt growing when they were growing up was that, you know, you didn't always have to be the absolute best. They love sports. Uh, and so it was, that wasn't the hard part. And they all skated uh, and had some advantages, I, you know, to get back to sort of where this all starts. I think it does start at the youth level. And hockey is a very unique sport in that, you know, you have to learn how to skate early. I mean, you can't, you know, picking it up when you're 10 or 12 is okay. But, you I mean, if you really are trying to go to another level, I mean, you really need to start to learn how to skate early. So having that available to our youth um, in the cities and uh, or any young people that want to skate, that's very important. And, and obviously difficult, say, in the southern states, a little more difficult than it is in some of the more northern states where you have an op- more opportunities for ice and the like. But that needs to happen. And then when you move from there into high school, uh, you know, the ability, you know, having that available to you uh, to play, that seems to be there. But then beyond that, sort of what's the next level and, and, and sort of that jump between high school and juniors and into, you know, potentially a, a, a pro kind of uh, role is, is really hard. But even just playing at the next level was important. Uh, when you get to college and the way it's set up right now, most of those college players are junior players that have played elsewhere. So, um, you know, and that kind of gets missed. And so I think a lot of people fall off in terms of not being able to go to that next level, especially if they're minorities, because once they finish high school, they're pretty much done. I mean, they just don't they don't have that advantage of going to juniors and the like. So there has to be some invention there to help those individuals uh, move on. But beyond that, even just in, in terms of hockey in general, whether it's GM, coach, whatever, I mean, I always felt that you don't have to be the best football player, but you can always try to be the smartest football player. You can always try to be the smartest hockey player. And so if you start to focus on the game, uh, that you can have a talent that you can bring to the game. So whether it's medicine, whether it's assistant coaching, whether it's a co-head coach, whether you know it's someone in operations or whatever, 
you can you have a lot to bring as long as you bring the knowledge with you in that particular area. So I think that what I try to do with my kids is say, you know, you enjoy the game, you enjoy sports, uh, and it's a passion. And of course, anytime you can work at something that's a passion, it's really not work. And you know, and so uh, if you're passionate about it, and and you you know that's where your knowledge base is, you can do any job uh, in hockey as well. So they gravitated towards hockey. So yes, very proud of that, and um, you know, excited for for all of them. Uh, and uh, but I would agree that you know there's different steps along the way that we probably just we have the ability to pay more attention to to get more minorities involved uh, and let them sort of find their passion within the game. But then, of course, obviously, once they do that, then uh, we have to allow them to apply and be judged uh, accordingly. Last question, guys. You guys have been unbelievably uh, generous with your time, and um, I'm worried that Dr. Boyd has somebody on the operating table with uh – like anesthesia about to wear off or something. Um, you know, let's bring this back to where we started. You, you know, George F Floyd was was laid to rest yesterday. Where do we go from here that he is just not another name? Uh, one of many black men that have been killed uh, with police brutality. Where, where do we go from here that keeps this suddenly much of this world together and trying to continue making this an issue where, where all men are really created equal. JT, do you I mean, want to I start? Think, I think Doc, yeah, I think Doc Boyd said it the best in, in, earlier in uh, our conversation, talking about uh, voting and whether that's from the presidential level all the way down to your local state level. Um, that's, that's where the change is going to happen. And I think, you know, everybody just needs to educate themselves before they vote and make sure you're, you're voting properly, um, whatever side you decide to vote for. But, you know, between that and, you know, just keeping the conversation going, not going silent, because eventually, you know, the posts are going to stop. We're going to get back to our daily lives. But we have to just not turn a blind eye like kind of we have in the past and, you know, keep it in the forefront. Jared? Yeah, I think for myself, it's just continue to educate myself and the family and people around you. And um, I think for myself, voting, voting's out of the question in the States, but at least um, if I'm able to educate my family and um, listen to the people around me with, if it's Eustace, like I said, if he has stuff that he thinks that can help out and I can be a part of that, that's going to help out as well. But um, I think like we've all said, it's just keeping, the conversation going and not let it fade off. Uses. To me, I think we need just to condemn racism in every fashion, in every corner, eradicate it. Um, I also think we need to be committed to change. Um, we need to bring qualified people of color to sit at the table so there is another voice, an opposite opinion to what we've seen and are used to. And I think if we do that, is when we will begin to see real change. Yep, Doc? Yeah, I think that uh, we need to do, like I said, all those things from the smallest thing to, from educating ourselves. Um, you know, people often ask, what can I do? You know, there are book lists out there, movies out there, documentaries out there. I mean, you, there are things that you can do that uh, you can educate uh, yourself. And, 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave this little vignette with you. There was a, there was a post uh, with a uh, woman. Uh, she was a uh, white professor speaking to a mostly uh, white uh, crowd. And she posed the question to them, if, uh, would you feel comfortable living as a black person in America? If you would, please stand up. And of course, no one stood up. And she says, I don't think you understand the question. She says, if you feel comfortable, if you would feel comfortable living as a black person in this country to stand up and no one stood up. And she basically was saying, that means two things. One, you recognize the problem. So, you know, and I think that's true of everyone. I mean, if you really ask them, they recognize everyone, every person recognizes the problem. And then the second part of it was that if you recognize the problem and you don't want to be treated that way, why would you let anybody else be treated that way? Mm-hmm. And I think that right there, I mean, if you can answer that question for yourself, that's, you know, that's a, that's a huge jumping point, a place to take off from. And, uh, and then doing all the other things we talked about, voting um, is extremely important. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, looking into the future, because having been there in the past for me and looking towards the future, each one of these is bigger and bigger each time. And, you know, if we let it fade away and it comes back, uh, you know, in the future, the next one will be really, really dangerous, uh, sad. Um, it'll, I think it'll be devastating uh, for the United States of America, period. Yeah. Well, hopefully better days ahead here and that none of us really forget really what happened here the last couple of weeks, uh, both in the United States, but, uh, but in particular here in Minnesota, because I think it was shocking for a lot of us uh, to watch that. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate all four of you coming on here. Uh, Joel Boyd, Eustace King, uh, JT Brown and Jared Spurgeon for having this conversation. It's not always an easy conversation, but hopefully people listening uh, learn something today. Uh, we'll think about how to maybe change to help change. And uh, as I said, maybe better days ahead. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.